this week, um, as I was preparing for this message, I was really excited to share my big news with you, all right? So my big news is um, I, I think I had an internet troll recently, which was like super exciting for me. Not really. But I uh, never had an internet troll before, and a few weeks ago while we were um, streaming a message uh, or service, I happened to, during the music, look down and I get alerts. So I was noticing um, there was someone commenting live during one of our services that was um, kind of saying some really mean, nasty things. They were like, you know, somebody was commenting on how powerful the service was, and the person responding was like, well, uh, you know, I used to think the same thing, but to be honest with you, my heart's been broken. I can't believe, um, you know, I lost faith in this church. Um, all the affairs the pastor's been having, the way he bought his wife a Lamborghini. And I'm like sitting there and I'm reading this and I'm like, what? Um, and I'm like, I, who is this? I'm never, you know, I'm clicking on the thing because I'm trying to figure out who is this person accusing me on the World Wide Web of having multiple affairs and buying my wife a Lamborghini. And so I'm reading through and I'm starting to notice um, as this person's ranting about the heartbreak and the distrust and the anger that's fueled towards, I guess, me, um, I start realizing she's calling me by a different name. She's like, I can't believe what Pastor John did. And I'm like, first of all, my name is Chris. Um, and, you know, and people will sometimes be like, oh, Pastor Chris or Father Chris. And I'm like, nope, nope, it's just Chris and definitely not Father because I only got papers for two, and unless you got papers, I ain't your father, right? So it's just like very clear, like, hey, let's keep the dividing line. And so it's like, Pastor John, I can't believe Pastor John did that, and Pastor John's Lamborghini, and I was just, and it clicked eventually that, like, I think I know who she's talking about. It's like, but surely not. This guy is, there was this scandal of a pastor who did buy his wife a Lamborghini, not the best move. Um, but I was like, he's kind of a famous pastor, and he speaks to millions of people on television. Some people consider him to be one of the better communicators in America today. He even has a reality television show. I was like, surely it can't be that guy, because I don't even think he's had affairs, has he? Um, and so then I go and look it up online, and sure enough, this guy had been, um, had confessed to, to affairs, multiple affairs, and he had bought his wife a Lamborghini. And I was like, Jenny, this person thinks I'm this guy. He's like one of the best communicators in America. How did she confuse me with him? He's on television, for crying out loud. He has a reality television show. And, and so it turns out in the end that maybe I didn't have an internet troll. I just had someone who was severely confused. And I quickly moved after reading the multiple posts that I did, in fact, remove. Um, because I was like, this is not directed towards us as a church. This should be directed towards them. Um, I, I went from um, kind of this like, oh, I think this is an internet troll to being heartbroken as a pastor, that this individual's faith had been shaken because of this individual's choices. And as we've been in this series this month, we've talked about that 
this Christmas, we need more than a good story. And that Christmas isn't just a good story. It's good news. And I think that one of the realities that many of us have faced, whether you grew up going to church or you just read about church in headlines, is that sometimes the church hasn't done a great job of being good news. That in fact, the headline around some churches, some pastors, some ministers, has been incredibly bad news. And in some ways, I think this is the shadow proves the sunshine kind of principle that the reason it's so bad is because whether or not you are Christian or not, there's this sense that we intuitively recognize that the Christian faith should produce people who reflect headlines of good news. In fact, one of, um, one of my favorite kind of musical artists in general uh, has a song that kind of unpacks this idea a little bit more poetically that uh, he's essentially that, you know, there's five, five gospels and the gospel is a New Testament uh, biography on the life of Jesus. And you know, there's five of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you and me, that you are the fifth gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are meant to be that picture that sometimes, as uh, Kirk Franklin has stated so eloquently, that you may be the only Jesus they see. I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian was not the, the name Jesus gave to his followers. It wasn't the, the name that the disciples, Jesus' original 12 followers, or the larger group of thousands of people who had mobilized behind Jesus' message in life and resurrection. It wasn't the name that they gave themselves. In fact, the word Christian was a derogatory term. It was a, a somewhat of a kind of a slang kind of epitaph, throw people down, uh, that was given to people because it was essentially like you want to be a little Jesus. That's what Christians meant, to be a little Jesus. And that Christians ultimately realize, you know what, the slang, the, this put down that they're giving us is actually incredibly clarifying. This is exactly who we're meant to be. We're meant to look like little Jesuses. In some ways, we are oftentimes the good news that people read before they find and hear the good news of who God is and what he's done for them. That you and I, if you're a Christ follower, you and I have a special mantle and a special opportunity that we get to do because there's so much headlines around bad news that the church, that what Jesus' desire for Christians were to be was the headline of good news. And that when we've walked through this month so far that Christmas, it's all good. This is one of the aspects and the implications of who Christians are supposed to look like. In fact, when Jesus was delivering one of his most famous messages, uh, one of his most famous teachings, uh, what's been called the Sermon on the Mount, one of the kind of sections of Jesus' teaching that has been studied the most. It's, um, if you were to do some research on it, this is a, a section of Scripture that part of my, my doctoral dissertation project was written around, that you'll find that there are thousands, thousands of scholarly kind of insight and reports and studies that have been done just on the Sermon on the Mount. It's an extraordinarily rich, deep 
Um, and it's arguably one of the most famous sermons that have ever been delivered in human history. But the purpose of the sermon, the context, is Jesus has gathered his original followers, the 12 disciples around him, and a crowd comes up, and they're listening in on what he's telling them. And so this was a teaching that was specifically intended for Christians. It was intended for the people who were committed to following Christ. And so the crowd got to listen in on this very intimate and profoundly deep picture of who and what their lives were supposed to look like. And he gets to a section of the passage in Matthew 5 um, in verse 14 where he says, You are the light of the world, which is kind of a little bit of a surprising statement, right? I mean, the theologians would have been like, wait, 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 no, you're the light of the world, Jesus. You, you, you're the light. He's like, no, no, no. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. He doesn't even pause after he says you're the light of the world. He, he chooses a word specifically that's really interesting. He doesn't say you're the light of the earth. He uses the word world, um, which in that day and age, if you were going to talk about the earth, you used one term, and that was the, you know, the mountains and the oceans, the seas, the, the valleys, uh, the plant life, the animal life. There was a word that you used to talk about all that stuff. And then there was a word that you used when you only wanted to talk about the people. And that was the word world. So when Jesus is saying you're a light of the world, he's not talking about the sun shining. He's not talking about the S-U-N. He's talking about the S-O-N people that who are meant to be light to the people around them. And they would have received that, and he instantly jumps into an illustration and a visual that was so intimately a part of everyday life. In fact, he says that, you know, neither do people light a lamp and put her under a bowl. That's ridiculous. Everything and what he says here is absolutely ridiculous. And they all know it because they all use this every single day. This is a first century lamp. You would pour olive oil, typically, inside of this bowl. They were really small. And there would be some type of wick sticking out the other end that you would light. And that wick would constantly be soaking and um, kind of drawing up olive oil to the flame. And this was what Jesus was referring to when he says, you uh, are the light. This is the lamp that he's specifically talking about. And you wouldn't have stuck this lamp under a basket because it was ridiculous. It would have burned the basket down. And the reality in that day and age was fires were a really common and dangerous threat. The city of Rome specifically, it, was, it wasn't very irregular to have whole high-rises because they would have buildings up to five, six stories tall in ancient Rome, to have a whole high-rise go because there was no concept of, you know, fire safety. You were in a dark cavity, and this was your light, and if this spilled on the floor, fire would spread very quickly, and it would engulf the entire place. So people are like, of course you would never put that under anything. You see, for us, one of the things that we... Um, can miss in this passage of the weightiness of what he's saying is that even right now as I'm speaking to you, I am surrounded by so much light, an obscene amount of light that up until the last 50 years, this has not been possible 
for a room this size to have this much light. It's an incredibly amazing feat to be able to control the color and the temperature and the brightness. All of this technology is a really recent addition. Most of humanity did not live in the reality of what we have, which is darkness is the exception, brightness is the norm. I mean, think about when's the last time you experienced true darkness? I mean, most of us sleep in rooms. Maybe you have blackout curtains, but there's probably an alarm clock. There's probably a device charging, a little blinking light, or a fan running. There's, there's even something probably glowing in your darkened room. We don't have darkness that often. Our lights, our streets, everything that we see is illuminated. Yet to be in the ancient world, darkness was the norm. It was what you expected. And with so much darkness, I I remember um, years ago, about 10 years ago, I had the privilege of going into a cave. And it was one of those like terrifying experiences to stand inside of this really dark cave. We were inside of a mountain. There was no more natural light coming in. It was the middle of the day. It was like noon. It was the end of a hike that we had done. And I'm standing inside that cave freaking out because I'm convinced there's some creepy things crawling all around me. And I'm doing this, and I can't even see it. My hand is here, and I can't see my hand. And for the ancient world, the only light you had at night was the moon. And so nights when it was the new moon, it was pitch black everywhere. And a little tiny candle lit in that cave would have illuminated and would have appeared to me brighter than any of this would have been. So Jesus, when he uses this specific illustration, it's a really powerful one to paint a picture of people who are the light of the world, who are the brightness. But I think there's also an aspect of, even though he calls them the light of the world, like that lamp, every light has a source. And so he's not just saying to them, disconnected from me, you're the light of the world. He's, he's actually about to unpack something. He's, he's using a metaphor that he knows he's going to turn in a couple of passages, and it all hinges on something that is innately wired into us as human beings. See, um, this is my little boy. Um, he uh, experienced his first, first snowstorm this week um, and responded pretty decently to it. I really like snowplows, snowblowers, and any loud sound. Um, And so he's kind of obsessed with the snowblower. But um, one of the things that he's in this phase right now that's really cute, uh, somewhat terrifying at moments, is he's in this mimicking phase. If you make a noise, he'll mimic it. If we're sitting at the dinner table this week and we're like, you know, just naming a bunch of people's names that we know. We're like, say this name, say this name, say this name. And he's just, he's saying that, he's trying to say everything we're saying. Uh, he had his first dentist appointment a couple weeks ago. And my daughter, Ella, was like, we're going to the dentist. And, and when you would ask, Henry, where are we going? You'd be like, dentist. <laughs> he was like, so everything. I mean, even this morning before I left to come here, um, he's, Ella's running around the house doing these silly little sounds and things, and, and then he's running behind her doing the same thing. He just, because 
he's 15 months old. He doesn't have a lot of things figured out, but one of the things that he knows to do instinctively is, is he just copies what he sees other people doing around him. And if I copy what I see other people doing, that, that's the quickest way to figure out what it is I'm supposed to do. And this isn't just something that babies do. We do this all the time. If you've ever been in a large setting or like some kind of social setting back when social settings happened and you're at a fancy dinner and you've got, you know, more utensils than you've ever seen before or you're in a, an environment where you're kind of, you're looking around and people notice how people are dressed and what people are talking about. Like we do this all the time. We pay attention and we try to mimic and copy so that we can fit in. And what Jesus knows is that ultimately in the day, what he's about to unpack for them, what he's about to lay out for them, even as they're sitting on this mountain, is that their lives are meant to mimic and copy him. That in some ways, what I see my son do every single day is what I'm meant to do with Jesus every day too. That I'm meant to mimic and copy him in the course of everyday life. And in fact, that is, if you were looking for a single sentence summary of what does it look like to grow in your Christian faith, it's that. That is faith formation. It's copying Jesus. Who he is and what he does is what we're meant to do and be. And this is what Jesus ultimately lands at when he says, in the same way, and this, all this metaphorical language around light and lamp, he said, let your light shine before others. How do we do this, Jesus? He says, that they may see your good deeds. So what's the light? The light is good deeds. And what does it do? Well, it shines, our good deeds shines in such a way that people get a glimpse of who God in heaven, our Father, actually looks like. This is why Kirk Franklin's song has always resonated with me as a Christian because I recognize I walk in the rooms and sometimes I may be the only Jesus they get to see. And what picture of Jesus will they get from me that day? What will they see in me? What will they notice about me? And that that is an intentional step. That's an intentional path for formation that we're meant to mimic him in the way we live our lives. And as we do that, people get a glimpse of who he really is. And this is something that is so simple to say, but it's really hard to do sometimes consistently, isn't it? In fact, as a pastor, I've been in ministry for um, about 17 years. So I've been doing this for almost 17 years now. And I have two graduate degrees in theology and and yet, every single day at noon, I get an alert on my phone that I set up a long time ago. That's the words of Paul to, in a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, where he, he's saying to them this kind of self-biographical kind of revelation that he's like, you know what, I discipline myself so that in the midst of all of my preaching, that I make sure that my life lines up with the words I say. Like, I remember reading that and saying, if Paul, who's one of the most famous Christians of all time, could struggle with making sure his life lined up with what he said, then surely I should probably remind myself of that regularly too. Because I've seen the damage 
that people have experienced because of storylines and headlines like the pastor I said earlier. That it's heartbreaking. I've, I've had friends, I've had mentors who were in clergy who, were, who made choices that devastated other people. That their private decisions had public ramifications. Because at the end of the day, this is something I say frequently to people in, you know, kind of developing in leadership ministry. I can be fired for things that most people would never be fired from their job. I mean, think about it, right? Like the, the credibility I have as a spiritual teacher is connected to the way that I walk, not just to my talk. But that's not just true about me as a pastor. This is, I think, meant to be reflective of what Jesus is saying. Your good deeds, that we're all meant to live out this life. And we don't do this to get God's favor. I don't believe because I'm a pastor or because I try to live for him that he loves me anymore. No, the, the beauty and the somewhat profoundness is that even, even if I completely turn my back on him, he's, it wouldn't change his love for me. And I say that that's crazy, but then as a parent, I recognize the same thing is true about my kids. There's nothing they could do that would ever make me stop loving them. And yet, it makes me want to do it even more because I know that my love, that his love for me and his love for you is so secure. I don't do it to get it. I do it because I got it. And so on, on my study desk is this Bible. And it's a Bible I've referenced before in a message. And this Bible has every single verse cut out that has everything to do about how I'm supposed to live out my faith. If you notice right there, I mean, there's whole books of this thing that are just missing. Whole sections of the Bible that have nothing on them because this is about all, all the verses removed are the verses of things that I'm supposed to do in my faith, the good that I'm supposed to live out, the generosity that's supposed to mark me, the kindness that's supposed to show up and how I live my life, that this is a reminder to me, not just in the alert that I get every day, but e even when I pick it up and I see it, that I'm reminded that I'm not supposed to talk a good talk, but that I'm meant to walk the good walk. And it's not just the end, it's a means to the end that people would see the good deeds and not celebrate me, but that they would see Jesus in me, that they would notice something different. And where this gets really practical, right? Because for many of us, we grew up in religious context and in our heads, we have, you know, the the nun slapping our wrist because we didn't say it a certain way or do it a certain way. And so the idea of talking to God, we almost kind of freeze up because we don't know the correct formula of how do we get his attention and make him like us or do I need to talk to this person to get this person? Like what's amazing throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is there's a God who says, speak directly to me. You don't need someone else to talk to him for you. You don't need someone else to intercede on your behalf. That's what Jesus did. And this invitation to imitate his life is what the Christian faith is meant to look like.
because of what he did to restore that relationship. And that, I imagine, this is one of the things that, I, so like, full disclaimer, um, like, I'm not a typical pastor. I, I, I don't fit the mold. Like, people don't say, oh, I want to hang out with that guy. Uh, I, I'm not a big personality. Um, I wouldn't even say I'm like this dynamic communicator. I work really hard. I'm, I bust my rear end, quite honestly, every single week to deliver messages that I hope is helpful. Like, there's nothing about me that I have friends who I hang out with, and I'm like, man, they're, they're extraordinary. They're so gifted that, that they could make, like, anyone like them. They're like the life of a party. Um, you know, there are all these different strengths that they have. And this is, I'm not putting myself down, I'm just being very candid with you. The reason I'm a pastor is not because, like, there's something innately about me that just eeks and reeks of pastoring, right? The reason I'm a pastor is because I so love and believe in what the church is meant to be and what Christian life is meant to look like. And the reason why is because I had people who lived out that previous verse in front of me. So I was talking to someone this week, and they were telling me um, how they, they were starting a, kind of a horse racing farm. I know, strange. And, um, and so some friends had heard that they were starting this horse racing kind of um, business, and they donated um, to the farm that he had, they donated a horse to him, the first horse. Was, he's, he's like, you know, it's brown, and it's got a black tail. And, um, and as he's trying to build this business, and he doesn't know anything about it, someone says to him, you know what, you should... Um, you should find out the pedigree of your horses because that really matters. Um, and so he goes and he starts to discover and learn more about the horses he has. And the first horse he had donated to him, um, he goes and looks into it and he finds out as the person's doing the research, they call him up and they're like, you won't believe what you have. And he's like, I got a horse. They're like, no, no, you don't just have a horse. You have the grand horse of secretariat. Now, Secretariat is one of the greatest racing horses in, in horse racing history. Secretariat literally had a movie made about it. I mean, and he realizes that he has this extraordinary gift sitting in front of him. And as he was telling me the story, I kind of, my mind kind of jumped to another place. I don't know if you do that. Sometimes you kind of just start to, like, it triggers a thought and you're running it. And I, and I was realizing as, a, as he was telling his story, I started thinking about me as a parent. And I was like, oh, man, how terrifying would that be if I get to the end of my life and I realize when I see God that he said, you know, I give you the grand horse of secretariat as children. You were meant to discover that secret and help them discover that secret, and you never did. I'm like, man, what if I'm pastoring a church filled with the grand horses of secretariat, and it's a secret they don't know. And I meant to show them that. Then I thought about my life and how one of the reasons I'm a pastor is because someone in my life who invested in me, spent time with me, um, said, hey, I know you're not going to think this is kind of crazy, but you know what? I actually see some things in you that I think could make you a really good pastor one day. And I want to help foster that. that. In fact, all the good things in my life that's come from God, oftentimes I've been alerted to that because of people's presence in my life who saw it before I saw it. And I started imagining, man, what if, 
man, what if the story he's telling, what if that's what Christians are meant to do when we show up, that we walk into a room with people who maybe don't feel like they're the grand horse of secretariat, who maybe don't feel like because of some past choices or because of a divorce or because of a past addiction or some struggles with pornography or some, some current moments with unemployment and feeling like a failure, what if we were people who walked in the room and, and we saw who they could be because of what God could do through them, not just where they were? What if we stopped giving people their current address in life and started to, to address them for where they could go? And who were they made to be? I imagine that people would want to be with those kind of people. I imagine that I would want to be around people like that. And that, that, I think, in some ways is meant to be a picture of the church, of a church who doesn't just play church, but opens up the Bible and sees it as a playbook for life. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm supposed to respond, that I'm supposed to love and serve and give and make a difference in people's lives. That I'm meant to walk into a room and to leave people better than how I found them. That when someone lashes out like last week's message, we love them up. That we let things go and we help them grow. That as parents, we... We recognize that God has entrusted to us for a season, little grand horses of secretariat, and they don't know the secret yet. And that we help them to discover that. And as Jesus was kind of unpacking that, I, I mean, imagine these people who've been held down by the Roman Empire, who've their entire lives, what's marked them religiously is, you know, you can't jump through the hoops, you can't be good enough. None of these people are educated. None of these people are the type of people who would have ever been picked to lead a religious movement. But this is what Jesus does. He walks up to a guy like Simon who runs his mouth without checking it by his brain. And he says to Simon, hey, Simon, I want to change your name. I'm going to call you Peter, because Peter means rock. And everything about Peter's life was rocky, not solid. And yet Jesus says, you're the rock, Peter. You're the foundation. Who you're going to become is strong, secure, and stable. Not this slicing off the ear, speaking words, promising you'll always have my back, and then denying me three times in front of me. Even in the midst of all that, that was still in Peter's future when Jesus met him. He calls him Peter. This is what Jesus did. He loved and he served and he made a difference in people's lives. That he was inviting us to imitate him. And he says to them, right, the city on a hill. That what's interesting is in that time period, none of those lamps by themselves could make that kind of brightness on their own. And yet... Collectively, because this is an age of darkness, any light shining from any place would have shined brightly. I don't know if you've ever driven through the deserts in the Southwest, but the first time I ever did that, I remember being completely disoriented because at nighttime you're driving and you see a city in a distance. And it looks really close, especially if you have to go to the restroom or you need gas. You're like, oh, there's a city. I'm almost there. And then you ride by a sign that says, you know, next city, 60 miles away, 100 miles away. And you realize that what you've been staring at for hours is a city. 
that 60 to 100 miles away from where you are, you can see it shining brightly. Jesus is like, collectively, when the church comes together, they can do more together than they can individually. That it wasn't just meant to be an individual faith, it was meant to be a collective faith. People show up, and together, they do more than what anybody could do on their own. That's, in fact, exactly what's happening right now in this moment. There are people in this room you can't see that I can. There are people in a back room that you can't see. But the only reason you can see me is because I see them. Because collectively, we show up here on Sunday morning, and they do what nobody individually could do. It takes a team of people to be able to create what happens on this stage, to be able to run the screens and to broadcast the stream, that even this service in this moment is a picture of what the church can do collectively, that we can do more. That's really what's around the Love Does offering, this idea that at the end of the year, we want to focus specifically on the concept of coming together as a church because we believe in the early church recognized that when Jesus was saying, you are the light of the world, that you are a city on the hill, that you are a picture of what could be, and that the early church sprung out of that reality and out of that identity, and they took it seriously, and they started to live it out, and they started to reflect that and point people. They had this idea that they were literally the ambassadors of this kingdom that would one day come, this king named Jesus, that his, his land, his, his world, that heaven could show up on earth, that the church was the embassy grounds. I don't know if you've ever walked into an embassy, but it's this really cool thing that when you walk into an embassy, you're all of a sudden transported to a whole different nation. And that the ground that you're standing on is no longer the United States, it's Brazil or it's Ecuador or it's France or England. That you stand on those grounds and all of a sudden the laws and the customs of that land is present. And the early church realized that they were the embassy grounds of heaven. That maybe hell surrounded them, but when someone came and gathered with the church, they could smell and taste and see a little bit of what heaven was like. And the way that people treated each other and the way that people served on one another and the way that people recognized and celebrated and lifted up instead of holding down. There were people who were committed to justice and good. The early church believed that so much that they did that frequently. And that for one bad headline of a pastor being really stupid and doing something really evil or dumb or from some church cover up, For every one bad, there are thousands of untold good headlines of people's lives who were transformed, of people who were lifted out of poverty or hospitals that were started. When the early church, whenever there was devastation or pandemics, the early church would run to the people who were hurting and grieving, not run away like everyone else, because they believed that they were creating and living and experiencing as an embassy a little bit of a picture of heaven on earth. And this year, this is why with our Love Does offering, we're doing something a little different. To be very candid with you, this year has been very frustrating for me. Um, That's like the most obvious statement of the year, right? It's been frustrating for you too. This has been a hard year that both individually, like so many of you, the pressures and the transitions have been there, but also 
for small business owners to recognize organizationally it's been hard. This is what we've been doing for nine months. We can only get 15 people in this room. That's frustrating. We've had people who've left this church who now go to other churches because they can't physically be in this room. That's frustrating to me. We've seen people's jobs upended, lives upended. We've seen all of that. And the thing that's really been the core of my frustration, all those other things, the frustration underneath is that I've watched people suffer. And for every, you know, check we've been able to write to help someone, there's been things we can't do. Like I've ridden by food banks and been so mad that we can't give more to helping people eat. And so this year, kind of looking at the reality of, you know, all that's been present and being like, man, we can't do all the good that I believe we're supposed to do. It started to stir inside of me back in the summer of like, maybe there's, we serve a God who takes setbacks and can turn them into setups. Maybe there's something else that we could, maybe there's an opportunity, not just an obstacle in what we're dealing with this year. Because I recognize with the drop in giving that we experienced this year, with the inability to meet, serve, and because of a drop in giving, the lack of being able to do the more good that we wanted to do, that I never wanted to relive that year again as a church. So it started to stir this idea that, for a lack of a better term, I'm just going to call the Encounter Learning Center. And that's just kind of a, a place header that we have for this concept of starting a preschool in the fall of 2021. That what we recognized is that there's been a huge, um, huge uh, kind of demand for preschools because of COVID-19. There's also been simultaneously a huge drop in the supply. That we started the dream, something that we've had inside of our heads for a while, but we started to say, well, what if this is the year we do it, which is really dumb. Like who starts something in a pandemic? I think Christians who want to do something good. Like, well, what if we started a preschool that leveraged the best of who we are as a church, a church that understands that every single Sunday when kids would walk in here, that we had an hour to communicate them the great secret, their, their, their little grand horse of secretariat, that they've been made in the image of God, that they have infinite value and worth, and that they were his idea, regardless of where they've come from, regardless of what they've done, or, or the family that they were born into, like God had a plan for them. They were his idea. And to create that avenue and expression of love that isn't just one hour a week, but it is five days a week. And in the process of being able to do that, we could charge an under-the-market rate for preschool and deliver an over-the-top experience that would help kids physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually thrive. Not an in-your-face type spirituality where we're indoctrinating children, but a place where there's this imitation of Jesus that's present in how we love and serve and, and, and engage families in a way that makes this community better. And the best part of all that is not just that by doing the kind of creating a preschool, it'll allow us to financially stabilize in what we know is going to be a really tough year coming up because of what we've looked at with our trends. The best part, the part that's really got me excited and the parts that 
I won't even get into right now, is like because of just the nature of the reality of a couple different kind of market things that happen, um, this will allow us to arrive at the end of every year of a full school year and have $150,000 in profit. Now, that's exciting because as a church, that means that we have $150,000 to give away, to use and to leverage strategically, where we've been able to give thousands to help support orphanages. Now we could give 10,000 to help feed kids, to help create church experiences like this all around the nation. That we would have the resources, not so that I would get a better salary or a bigger salary. My salary won't change. What will change is our community because of the good that we've been enabled to do even more. And as the church grows and gets strong economically, financially, and we recover from COVID-19, the beauty is that that $150,000 profit will grow and can grow up to $300,000 a year. Which means over the next 20 years, this preschool could give away $10 million to help kids inside portions and sections of the city who are under kind of resource and, and, and enable us to step in and partner with local nonprofits and those communities to help people have access to food and tutoring and all types of resources to help lift people who've been held down and that simultaneously we can step internationally and begin to do even more intentional things that $10 million in the course of 20 years blows my mind. And that the way that that would happen is the church collectively doing together what we could never do. I, I will never, like, you, you may not have ever been to seminary or had conversations with a career counselor around pastoring, but you don't go into pastoring because you're going to give $10 million away, okay? Like, that's a whole different bad headline story we're not going to get into, right? <laughs> the reality is, is that I want to be a part of a church that gives $10 million away through one preschool over the next 20 years. And that we're dreaming, how could we show up with some racial tensions? How do we show up in areas of under-resourced and people who've been neglected to let justice flow, to be a part of God's love and grace and justice flowing into a, a variety of different streams that we strategically and intentionally partner with to see the greatest impact. And this is why I said that we're using Love Does this year to focus in on that because this is an investment that is going to allow us over a couple of decades to see an impact that we've never before explored or imagined. That the church, through people continuing to give and invest, the local church will continue to do its generosity, its generosity and its good deeds, but the learning center, the preschool, will enable us to, to be catalytic and do even more. But to start a preschool, we need about $300,000. That, a majority of that, actually, is in order to build a playground, which is per state code what we have to build. Um, I have to be very real with you. I look at playgrounds differently now because now I see price tags, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, that, that's $150,000 pieces of equipment just right there. Like, it's, it's amazing how much that stuff costs. But in order to open a preschool, what's exciting is that the biggest barrier we have is not Anything inside this building, it's what we have to build outside the building. 
and that by being able to raise $300,000, it'll enable us to, to execute the contracts, the, the bids that we've already gone out and gotten so that we can get a sense for what we're looking at, that that $300,000 this year will enable us to give millions of dollars away over the next few decades. And so in some ways, it's an investment. And so this is what I want to say to you. If you've been looking to make a difference this year, and you've been trying to figure out where do I put, where do I invest, where do I spend my resources, where do I go above and beyond the generosity I've had, I would say it's love does. Because you partnering with our family, with other families at this church, that if every person who watched this this week, if we all said, man, I'm going to give above and beyond, I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to serve and I'm going to show up and write a check, that if we all did that this week, we could get to 300000 Not because there's someone who can write a $100,000 check, but because there's about 300 people who would see this service in the course of a week and if everybody gave 1000 Now, I recognize for some of us that's a lot, that maybe you're all, you could only give 20 or 100 But I also know that there are people here who could give 10, 15x that amount or 30x that amount. And that collectively together, that we could show up and set up for even more good to be done in 2021, in 2022, 2023, and the years to come. And here's the thing. It's okay if you don't give the love does, but my challenge to you is if you don't show up here and shine, where are you going to show up and shine? You have an option of where if you're a Christ follower. You don't have an option of if. And I would say in, in a time, in a period, in a year where there's been so much bad news, let's show up and shine a light and remind people that Christmas can be all good.